as I search for sometimes psalms that are not in our hymnal, I come across a text that seems to capture the theme, and uh, I think this this particular one captures some of the theme of the song. Sometimes the song writer tried to capture every single verse, and if they tried to rhyme it in English, uh, it becomes, sometimes it becomes awkward, and uh, so it's a blessing when you can find a text and a tune that work together, and the tune is not, in this case, uh, if you're talking about the rising waters and the floods high, my feet having no uh, place to stand and the potential of death, you really don't want a happy tune because it's a serious circumstance. So sometimes the tune fits the words, but it doesn't fit the words. It doesn't fit the the theme of the psalm. So if you look at uh, this psalm, uh, this is a psalm of David. It is a psalm that, as we follow the previous one, which emphasize the glory of the kingdom, God's kingdom, as the Ark of the Covenant was moved to the place where God dwells and his people worshipped him, and then there was a call to the nations to submit to him, to worship him, to sing to him. Now this psalm turns and focuses on suffering and humiliation. And I think there's a biblical picture that if we remember, they actually do fit together. Not that the Psalms were meant to, but the fact that they are one right next to the other. When you think of Christ and his glory, but also suffering, we would say that while he was innocent and did not deserve the suffering, that he endured that suffering, and that was the path to glory. And of course, he had glory before he came in the flesh, but when he came in the flesh, he suffered. I would just encourage you to read through, as we read through this, uh, what verses do you recognize as being connected with the life and ministry of Christ? So this is for the choir director, the title says, according to Shoshanim, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. 
When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of drunkards, of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving, and it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. This is God's word. Praise the Lord for his giving us his word. And in the case of this psalm, there are prophecies. There are words to be fulfilled. If this is David's psalm, it's not to say David is absent from the meaning or the prayer itself, if it's a prayer that he prayed, but ultimately we can see this fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Did you see anything that related to the ministry, life and ministry of Christ? Any verses that point to him and to what he did? Okay, the drinking of vinegar and gall. Uh, Verse 21, John 19, 28, John draws attention to the fact that so that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty, and then they did that. So that definitely is a, a reference to the life of Christ, the death of Christ. Anything else? Now you can 
you can use the cross-references. They're there. I almost said cheat, but it's not really cheating. They're there for us, right? It's a blessing. Verse 9, what does verse 9 refer to? First part of verse 9. What happened in connection with that verse? Pardon me? Yeah, the cleansing or the clearing of the temple. The zeal, and it says his disciples remembered that that was written of him. Good. That was... The beginning of his ministry, it also happened near the end of his ministry, but the beginning, John chapter 2, records a time when he went and cleared out the temple. And what was it? It was his zeal for God that saw God's house being dishonored. And so he went in and took care of business in a righteous way as the Messiah who was certainly Lord of the temple. Anything else? There are so many in this psalm that some would take this entire psalm as referring to Christ and not David. Like, it's almost all prophecy. If we did that, would there be any challenge to that? To doing that? To accepting that? Mike? Yeah. Because that seems to be a confession of folly and wrong. And so on the surface, that appears like immediately this can't be Christ because Christ was innocent. That's one of the verses that people wrestle over when they have they take that interpretation. Um, so yes, that would be, that would be a challenge. How about verse 4? Those who hate me without a cause. If you have a cross-reference next to that phrase, it's not the phrase that says more than the hairs of my head. That's unique to the psalm. But Jesus spoke in John 15 of those who hated him without a cause. There was no just or righteous cause for their antipathy towards him. Why did they hate him? He was righteous, completely righteous. So it's sort of like Cain and Abel. Abel didn't do anything wrong. He just did something right. And what happened? He was hated and murdered for it. Verse 9, at the end of the verse, it says, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 15 where he says, for even Christ did not please himself, and he makes an appeal to Christians to be unselfish in light of what Christ did. Even Christ didn't please himself. The the reproaches or the insults that were coming to God came to Christ. Jesus even says in John 15 that they not only hated him, but they hated the Father. So he was bearing the insults and the reproach, the blasphemies of those who blasphemed God the Father, but he himself was taking it. And so, yes, they hated Christ, but they also hated the Father. And in that way, Paul says that passage is really a fulfillment 
you know, that this passage is a fulfillment of, of Christ's life, of how he lived and what he suffered. Um, down in verse 12, those who sit in the gate talk about me and I am the song of the drunkards. Now, I don't know that we have any specific instance where there are drunkards, but there certainly is mockery of Christ, even though he was innocent. And uh, as he was righteous, he was then, even on the cross, reproached, insulted, mocked, and as that mockery took place, it was broad-scale, wide-scale, you might say. Look at verse 22. Read that imprecation. This is one of those psalms that has an imprecatory uh, part of it. May their table before them become a snare. When they are in peace, may it become a trap. So there's a, there's a prayer against those who have treated them this way. Look down at verse 25. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. That passage is referenced in Acts chapter 1 in the description of what happened to Judas as he hung himself and fell in a field that became known as the field of blood. And the priests took the money And they purchased the field so that strangers could be buried in it, which effectively meant they're not going to build any apartments there. It was a cemetery, burial plot for strangers. That would mean that it was empty. So they took Judas's money. They bought this field in his name so as to not connect themselves with it. Apparently, based on the circumstances, he also died in it. Maybe that was an after-the-fact Adjustment, or however they did it, but it was a fulfillment of Scripture. It was a curse that came to Judas because of what he did in betraying Christ. Paul quotes verses 22 and 23 in Romans 11, 9, and 10. Verse 25 is in Acts 1, 20. So multiple references to the point where this psalm is just filled with references to Christ. And you can see why someone might want to take it entirely of him. But then the challenge comes when someone is talking about their sinfulness. And we know that he did not sin. We'll talk about those verses when we get to it. So we're just really, uh, tonight, just kind of introducing this psalm. But we'll take some time to go through this psalm as we did the last one. I was not anticipating as many messages on the last one. But uh, the scriptures are here for us not just to make our way through quickly, but hopefully to understand, and I hope that the Lord will teach us through this one as well. The first thing I want to see in this psalm, I want you to see, is the nature of this prayer that we find. It is a prayer in distress it starts out as a prayer save me verse 13 he says but as for me my prayer is to you O lord it's directed to yahweh the god of the bible 
Verse 16, he's looking for an answer. Answer me, O Lord. He's asking for a deliverance of his soul. He's describing his circumstances, and then he's praying an imprecation upon his enemies. He's praying down judgment upon his enemies. So this is a prayer in distress, and I trust that even as, even as these words can be applied to the Messiah, we find ourselves in distress as well. And that's what the Psalms are there for, to set a pattern for us as to how to pray, as to when to pray, even the words to pray. There are times when you lack and I lack words to pray. You don't know what to pray. That's what the Psalms are there for. It's a prayer book. It's a hymn book. It's words to sing, but it's also words to pray. And the circumstance in this psalm is a circumstance of distress. It is not, as you look at the first few verses, it's not a literal, physical circumstance. He's using imagery here to draw attention to how he feels and the danger that he is in. And so the mention of the waters, the mire, the flood, he's not talking about a literal circumstance that he is in Uh, In that way, he's using those images to help us to know how he feels. Obviously, he's talking to the Lord, but those images are suggestive of not only his experience, but at times our experience as the people of God. Have you ever called out to God to save save you out of an experience that you were going through? Unjustly? Now, you and I aren't sinful, or are not sinless. Christ was sinless. We are sinful. And so, as a result, when we go through troubles, it's a little different than when Christ is going through troubles. But we can still pray and still look to the Lord. And that's what I want to just encourage us to do as we see the example before us here. David praying, Save me, O God. There's no lead up to that. It's the first word of the psalm. Save me. And the word, oh, is an inexpressible emotional word when someone says, oh, help me. They're expressing emotion through that. And this is sort of like when Peter is, remember he's walking on the waters because he was encouraged to and his own faith was at the point that he stepped out strong enough, but then he started to sink, and Lord, save me. The urgency of that. Israel, at times, in the book of Judges, is going through, you could say, persecution. It was distress because of their own sins, but they called out to the Lord for salvation. They cried out in their distress, repeatedly. And what did God do? Well, God hears this prayer, this simple prayer, just the first four words, just the two words, save me, O God. I think as we look through the psalm, we see what really God pays attention to is not just our words, but our person and what we do when we're in distress as we even just look to him. But when we cry out for salvation, we remember that God, this God that we're reading about, that we're meditating on these psalms is the same God who 
of whom it was said in Psalm 65, verse 2, O you who hear prayer. That's not a word uttered into the darkness. It's not a word uttered that's meaningless. It reaches the God of heaven and he knows and he hears. You can be sure that if you call out to God for salvation intensely, as David does here, he will hear you. The scripture says, Paul said in Romans chapter 10, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. You can be sure. And this is what God does best. He saves. His son is Jesus. Yahweh saves. And so when you call upon him for salvation, he has purpose to save. And he has sent his son in order to save. And of course, he saves us from our sins. But even temporal circumstances, it's really not anything for the Lord to save someone. But he works by faith as we call out upon him. Now, what's the circumstance that would call for such an intense and earnest prayer? We're looking at some aspects of this prayer. It is an earnest or an intense prayer. It is a desperate prayer. He is feeling greatly threatened. The image that he uses first is the waters that are threatening his life or that are coming into his soul. I think there's an indication even in that statement, the first statement that he makes, that this is not literally uh, water that he's in, but a circumstance that he's in that is threatening to overwhelm him and drown him. And so he is earnest, he is desperate, he's looking for help. And I don't know if you've ever been through a time where you have been under the water. And I'm not trying to renew any bad memories for you. I know some of us have experienced that. I do remember a time when I was in, I was out in Hawaii with a friend, and he said, let's go to this area where we can snorkel. It was in kind of an empty area, just me and him. There were a few people around, but mostly just empty. So we went out, and we're about 15 feet uh, deep, and I don't know how many, maybe 100, 150 yards out. Of course, I'm always looking around for jaws. It's going to get me. But I took in some of the seawater, and it was in my throat, and I came up, and I took the tube out, and I just was gasping to breathe. And he was snorkeling, too. We were attempting to spearfish. We had these spears and they have this surgical tubing that you take and put your hand in and pull your hand down the spear and then just let it go. So we're, you know, so I've got some things with me. Plus now I'm, I'm above the water, but I can't breathe. And I was so thankful that he noticed what was going on because he came up, my friend, his name was Tom. He came up from the water and he said, breathe out. But until he said that and until I did that, it was sheer terror. I mean, I wasn't worried about Jaws. I was worried about drowning. And I 
I don't know that I'd ever had that quite that experience before. But look at what he says here. The waters have threatened my life. They've come into my soul. There's an inner disturbance and trouble that he is experiencing that is choking him. And yet, what does he do? He tells the Lord about it. And he feels that the circumstance is inescapable. Look at verse 2. He says, I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. You get the idea of, as it says in another place, miry clay or Jeremiah sank down in the mud in a muddy cistern. So either a real thick mud, uh, thick enough to capture you and keep you, but not so thick that you don't sink. And so you're sinking and you're stuck. And he says, I've sunk and there's no foothold. There's nothing to put your foot on. You can't find the shore. You can't find a place to kind of brace yourself so you don't go down any further. And if it was just water, as it says in verse 1, it'd be one thing. But it's mud. And so anytime you struggle, you're actually causing yourself to go down even further. Spurgeon has a, an illustration in his commentary in the Psalms that describes the experience of someone who is walking along the banks of the Nile. I'll read it here. He says, I was taking a quiet walk along the banks of the Nile when I came to a part so soft and miry that I was brought to a stand as my foot sank at every step. Being brought to a stand, I hailed the rays to heave to and take me on board. So he's talking about this a group that was with him. He says, one of the men was therefore sent in the small boat, but the river near the western side was so shallow that he could not get the boat within some distance of the bank. He consequently, as is usual in such cases, jumped overboard that he might carry me to the boat on his back. No sooner, however, had he sprung from the boat than I heard him scream. I turned to see what was the matter when I found him struggling in the mud and he was sinking as though in quickstand. The more he struggled, the faster and deeper he sank. His fellow boatmen were not slack. They quickly saw the dilemma he was in, and the two of them dashed into the water and swam to the small boat. I was almost choked with terror, and I breathed, or rather gasped with difficulty. Can they reach the poor fellow, I said to myself? If not, he must inevitably be swallowed up alive. Now they reach the boat, now they near him, and now, praise the Lord, he grasped firmly hold Oh, that death-like grasp of the side of the boat. But this was not until he had sunk up to his bosom or his chest. He was, he was up to his chest, going down. Inescapable. Whatever David's experiences were, I mean, we can imagine what David's experiences were, where he felt like he was in that kind of a circumstance. I mean, he was in a cave at one point, and Saul's in front. There's no indication that this is that circumstance. But David found himself, remember, with Achish and all the Philistines? That's when he started spitting on his beard and scrabbling on the wall and making that he, out that he was crazy. 
But it's that kind of a circumstance. Look at what else he says. I've come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. So remember they they toss Jonah overboard and now he's in the water and now the fish swallows him and Jonah is, he can't escape in a very confined space and Jonah talks about that experience. That adds a fish, that's not here, but it's a deep flood kind of experience where you can't see your way out and you're losing your breath and unable. That's certainly why he called out to God. But notice, there's a continual calling out to God. Verse 3 says, I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for God. So this experience that he's going through is extended and it's having emotional effects upon him, physical effects upon him. He's weary, I believe the sense there, weary because he's crying. He's crying so much that he's tired as he cries out. He is hoarse. I think that's the idea when he says, my throat is parched. Uh, If there's water, there would be something to uh, give him, you know, as he describes this, there's multiple images here. But this one, I think, is, is talking about the fact that he's been crying out and he's been crying out so much that it's affecting his throat And his eyes are failing. He's looking for deliverance. But he's starting to realize it doesn't seem like it's going to come. At least that's the way he feels. I don't know if you've ever been in that experience where you have had a strong expectation of something. Or a strong desire to see something. And you've looked... And you've looked and you've looked and there just hasn't been relief or deliverance. But what is he doing when his eyes fail? What's he doing? He's continuing to trust. He says, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. So there's the midst of this circumstance, this emotionally overwhelming circumstance, intense prayer. He's calling out to God. His throat is parched and his eyes are failing, but he is waiting for God. He's he's relying on the fact that God is going to respond and answer I love what Samuel Rutherford said when he talked about what's happening here. He says, because first prayer is a pouring out of the soul to God, and faith will come out at the eye in lieu of another door. Prayer is first a pouring out of the soul to God, And faith will come out at the eye in lieu of another door. What's he talking about? He's talking about even when we are going through a struggle in our soul, that even a look to the Lord is an expression of our faith, even just our looking to him. 
He says, often affections break out at the window when the door is closed, as smoke vents at the window when the chimney refuses passage. Stephen looked up to heaven. Remember, Stephen is being persecuted. He's about to die, based on what we know of the passage, but he looks up to heaven and he sees the Son of Man standing. He sent a post, Samuel Rutherford says. A greedy, pitiful, and hungry look up to Christ out at the window at the nearest passage to tell that a poor friend was coming up to him. And he says there be many love looks of the saints lying before the throne in the bosom of Christ. The twinkling of your eyes in prayer are not lost to Christ. Stephen's looking to the Lord, literally looking. He's looking up into the heavens. David is looking to the Lord. His eyes are failing because of it. And Rutherford says, if this wasn't important, basically he says, why is it in Scripture? God records this in Scripture. The eyes of David the eyes of Stephen looking up because he pays attention to the look of faith. Of course, God sees everything about us. He knows the secrets of our heart. He knows what's taking place in our life. You may not have words to pray. You might be hoarse from crying out to God, but just look to the Lord. What did it do for the people who saw the brazen serpent looking for healing? All they had to do was look, and they lived, and God saw that. What is his experience? Well, there's this emotion. He's overwhelmed. He's in distress. And part of what he's going through, he's describing it in terms of these images, but then it seems that he's being more direct in verse 4 as to the cause of what's taking place. He says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. So the idea of when the Bible says he knows the number of hairs on our head, the idea is innumerable. We don't sit around counting them. But there are so many, and they have no justification for hating him. No justification. There's no good reason... He's hated by more people than he can number, and they don't have a good reason, and they want to destroy him. Next, next phrase says, they who would destroy me are powerful. The word that's translated powerful there is used in another place where Isaiah describes horses and chariots, horsemen, a military movement. These who are opposing him are powerful, and they are, the end of the verse, or the the end of that next phrase, being wrongfully my enemies, actually has the word lie in it. So it's translated being wrongfully my enemies, or one translation has it attacking me with lies. Okay, they hate him without a cause, they're powerful, they want to destroy him, they're attacking him with lies. And then he's innocent. 
He has nothing that he really did that would invite such persecution. I think that's the sense of that last phrase there in verse 4. He says, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. Now, again, it's difficult to connect that with an actual event in David's life. But I do think the point here is that when you stole something, you would have to provide restoration or restitution. If you were asked to give restitution for something you did not steal, that itself would be injustice. And that's what he's being called upon to do. And so he says, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. The point here is that he's innocent. So all this trouble that's coming upon him, there isn't anything that he's done to deserve it. And of course, that is Christ. Christ was innocent. He was the Lamb of God. He was spotless, without blemish. Which of you, he said, convicts me of sin? And yet they did not believe his words. They hated him without a cause. They persecuted him. Eventually they falsely accused him and took him and beat him and nailed him to a Roman cross. And by the way, what was he doing? On that cross, he was praying. So we learn something, I believe, about prayer here. We certainly can see that is true of our Lord, that when he went through all that he went through, he did not stop praying. That is a perfect life. That's a life of perfect trust and prayer. It's certainly an example for us. And he's telling, this is what prayer is, just telling the Lord exactly how he feels. Do you do that? Do you tell the Lord how you feel? Do you tell him what you're going through? See, the the alternative can be that we tell someone near to us that we may love and they love us, but there are times where we are going through something that they can't bear all of that. They can't necessarily do anything except console you. That's not to say don't look to friends and don't look to fellow believers in the church, but there are times where the burden that you have is so heavy, you need to put it on the Lord because he can handle it. As much as your spouse may love you, they may not be able to handle all that you're going through. They may love you and care for you and want to help you, but ultimately those things that we're going through in prayer, we need to pour out to the Lord. What does it say in Psalm 68, 19? Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. The God who is our salvation. Cast your burden on the Lord. He is telling the Lord just how he feels. He is telling it like it is. He is casting his cares upon God. He is exercising faith. That's what prayer is. You know, we we can talk about this. And I can talk about this in a message. But when it comes down to it, and I'm living my life through the week and you are, that's the test of our faith. Because how many times do we actually do that? How many times in the place of that do we complain? Or do we worry? Or we fret? Or we get discouraged? But we don't go to prayer. 
there it is. There it is. I say there it is because here it is in the psalm. The psalmist is doing that. And based on what we see in the psalms, the psalmist was habitually doing that. So I just want to encourage all of us, whatever we're going through, now you might be the reason that you're going through what you're going through. In other words, it it may be, verse 5, the circumstances you're going through is because of your own folly and your own wrongs, and sometimes we do have to learn through that. But, you know, if God is inflicting, uh, I hate to say the word inflicting, if he's disciplining us, he's doing that for our good, and he would be glad for us to tell him He would delight for us to tell him, even in the midst of discipline, how we feel. And at some point, if we know that it really is verse 5, we could actually say, although it's not easy, Hebrews says that no chastening for the present is joyful, it's grieving, Could you say to the Lord, could you say to the Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you for not leaving me to myself. Thank you for what you're doing to produce holiness in my life. Lord, this is not an enjoyable experience. It is painful, but I know that you have a good purpose in this. Thank you for giving me grace to pray to you and to submit to you. God will hear such a prayer. And his desire for us is that we would grow in holiness and likeness. And if you start thanking your God for his discipline, your father for his discipline, and your heart starts to turn and go in the right direction, that brings him joy. That's really what he's after. He wants your heart to be in the right place. He wants your life to be right. He wants your heart in the right place. May the Lord help us to look to the Lord, to cry out to him in distress, to tell him in prayer just like it is, to cast our burdens upon him, cast our cares upon him, and then what's the promise? The promise is that peace that passes all understanding will guard, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The circumstance may not change, but what will change is that you poured out your heart to the Lord and then God will minister to your heart. Peace. That, he says, passes understanding. I don't know, things haven't changed, but I know that I've told the Lord and now I have a peace about it because God is going to take care of me. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know he's my heavenly father. I know he cares about me. I know he's working all things together for my good. What a wonderful thing we have to know the Lord and to be able to do this. You know, the the alternative is, is what? Just take out the first phrase, save me, O God. Take out, while I wait for my God. Going through that without God? Going through a distressing 
overwhelming, emotional, difficult experience, lost with no one to look to, sinking down in the mire, no boatman to come your way, What a terrible experience. You don't have to go through that without help. You just need to cry out to the Lord. And he will come to save. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you Lord for prayer thank you that we can come to you in the midst of our trials and our difficulty and know Lord that you hear us that you're able to save and I pray for your people all of us here tonight help us to put this on in our life we know that we ought to We know that it's there for us, but it takes true faith to exercise it. And so we ask, Lord, for your mercy, for the power of your spirit to work in our lives, even for the reminder of a message like this. Not just the message, but just these words of scripture. So that we might, in our life, build the habit of praying to you. Thank you, Lord, that when we're in distress and when we suffer, we can pray. When we're joyful in our hearts, we can sing hymns and songs. But wherever we're at and whatever is going on in our life, help us to always be looking up to you in faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.